Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Welcome. That was like magic. I'm Simone White, and it's Wednesday night here at The Poetry Project. Welcome. We're very happy to have Rosemary and Keith Waldrop here tonight. Thanks for coming out to hear them. So we have a special remote guest introduction written by Kit Schluter. Some of you know him, and um, I'm happy to be reading his introduction. He's in California, but he sent this as a special gift and tribute to the Waldrops tonight. Um, the story goes that sometime around 1960, two graduate students at the University of, University of Michigan, Rosemary and Keith Waldrop, acquired their first letterpress. After transporting it back home from Detroit in a borrowed truck, the time came for the unloading of this hulking machine, the new centerpiece of the at-home workshop of their budding publishing project, Burning Deck. But as many of you know, the letterpress is an object whose very heft seems to express a strong preference for staying still. So no sooner had these ambitious students, alongside a faithful friend or two, wrangled from the cohort, managed to lug this faded contraption to the basement stairs, that it broke entirely through them, falling a great distance and crashing onto the basement floor. Fate isn't always cruel, apparently, because the letterpress somehow survived the fall. And there it stayed, under the basement stairs of that Ann Arbor house, where Burning Deck's earliest publishing experiments were to take place. The rest, as they say, is history. There is something quintessentially Waldrop about this image of the hole in the stairs. I, Kit, can't help but imagine it in the shape of a perfect cookie-cutter letterpress, the kind of hole left behind in the canyon walls of old cartoons by Roadrunner every time he inevitably overshoots Wile E. Coyote. It speaks to the singular devotion these two artists both bring to their fights to suppress true creativity, difference, deviation, and all that with such a good sense of humor. For so many, so many of you, I'm sure, and so many around the world, across borders, languages, generations, the Waldrop's investment in literature has been a model of, even an argument for creating space in our lives from where we can push back against those conservative forces. Their work urges us to engage with the mediums of our creativity in novel and more daring ways. For a poet, that might mean learning new languages, reaching out to and translating authors we admire, staying up all hours of the night transforming the writing we love into books that will genuinely challenge their readers. For publishers, letterpress, and collage artists, novelists, and teachers as well, the Waldrops have forever raised or reinvented the bar. At the risk of taking the image too far, that letterpress, when it broke through the stairs, dismantled much more than wood. It also dismantled the reasonable, read unadventurous division we are taught from day one to erect between our art and our life. The Waldrops, alongside the very best, show us time and again that real life only takes place where this division is thrown into question. Poetry, as we have learned it from their example, far more than some curious approach to reading and writing, is at its best a way of being, of being curious, and of using our curiosities to lay the very foundations of our communities. It may not pay off overnight. <laughs> it may even attack our staircases, but in the end, the home such a poetry provides us in language is much more durable than any structure of wood and nails. I, Kit, 
have to confess that while thinking toward this introduction, I briefly ventured down a very dark road. For a moment, that is, I found myself imagining an alternate history of American poetry in which the Waldrops had decided to, say, start a law firm or a restaurant together <laughs> instead of ever writing, translating, or publishing any poems. However well, of course, they would wear the title Esquire, I didn't dare spend long in that dystopic vision because imagining poetry without work by the Waldrops is like imagining a world without sugar where all our candy is made with salt. Thank you, Rosemary and Keith, for all the sugar. That's very nice. But also, I just want to say that um, Kit was um, told me in an email as he was sending me this introduction that writing it was for him like a spiritual exercise, and he was so very pleased to do it. So that says something also about the importance of their work to individual young poets in the world today. So, born in Germany in 1935, Rosemary Waldrop is a poet, translator, teacher, publisher, and letterpress artist who has lived in Providence, Rhode Island since the 1960s. Among her many books are the poetry collections Lawn of Excluded Middle and A Key into the Language of America, the fiction A Form of Taking It All, and the critical exploration of translating Edmund Jabez, Lavish Absence, recalling and rereading Edmond Jabez. A major figure in the exchange between avant-garde European literature and American poetry, Waldrop has translated upwards of 30 books from French and German into English, including work by Anne-Marie Albiac, Paul Salon, Elka Erb, Frederica Mayrocker, and Jacques Roubaud. For more than half a century, she has run the poetry press Burning Deck with Keith Waldrop, publishing hundreds of books, many entirely by hand, along the way. A Knight of the Order of Arts and Letters in France, Rosemary Waldrop's selected poems, Gap Gardening, is recently out from New Directions and it's available for sale tonight. Please welcome her to the Poetry Project. Simone, and thanks, kid, <laughs> at a distance. Um, I guess more than the stairs got <laughs> broken occasionally. <laughs> you know. But um, anyway, thank you all for being here instead of walking about in this mild, astonishingly mild evening. Um, well, since we, both Keith and I have selected poems out this year, this year, and this is sort of a part of our celebration of it, I will read um, a sequence from, uh, from the book Blindside, which is from 2003, so from quite a while ago, uh, sort of in the middle here. And it's, um, it's about memory, which, is, which was beginning to fade fast <laughs> at that point. So the title of the <coughs> um, well, the title of the whole sequence is called Hölderlin Hybrids, because they're quotes from Hölderlin. And um, this particular sequence of five sections of prose poems is called Unaccountable Lapses. Unaccountable Lapses. One. What is memory? A palace, the belly of the mind, of absence a dream. The baby in the picture I don't remember, but I remember my doll. 
knowledge with the flavor of thin air. The more invisible the fabric befits neighboring particles. But the sun's eaten the sky and still its own body keeps. And where it is, we pursue. So more like a piece of property to which I lay claim than a state of mind or androgyny or a love of black pepper. In dark ivy I sat, in the shade of an oak, just as noon poured down and lost wax in my ears lingered, according to tradition. A shadow fell ac across clear-cut narration as I followed Wittgenstein to places where nothing happens. Even as I let wander my thoughts, the way blood cells circulate to any part of the body, or birds keep hopping from branch to branch, which makes them hard to keep track of, unless I have words that don't fall between the tracks. How many times can one single heart beat? How many breaths, deep and shallow, while the years pass without hard edges, so I could put them end to end. Two. Animals do not hunt for a story, but blind am I in my soul, a fault is embedded. And were it not for the doll, I would not know who I am a pocket in space expanding less rapidly, a riddle is anything pure. In pure memory, what is pure memory and where? I might know my image, but not find a caption. So a name of my own I have no matter what time of the year. So should I invert turn, breath held long enough to show the rim of vertical time? Molecules into slower vibrations betrayed? A flake of death off the skin? Do we remain as we begin? Not to words then would thinking turn, but to our first soaking sunlight, to rage raw and desperate, cleaving the body like lightning the earth. So where must I search for my childhood? Among folds of the brain at the risk of falling between? Or in my throat an acid reflux? In order to repeat what to complete I have failed? until there is a hole in the window where I had meant to throw a stone. Three. Maybe the past is enough for the past and all its inhabitants. They need not be drawn out of retirement. But if I repeat without knowing I repeat, am I in my own body? Or is the past 
like the gods without emotion and gropes for our feelings, lust, lest a transparent turn, like a woman not looked at, fading between the pages of Grimm's Kinder und Hausmärchen. Meanwhile, breath by breath down burns the house and under its rubble buries us and great bodies of thought melt away and no form identical to them ever again on the face of the earth appears. So of love and sweet of summer traces float through arteries like great ships carrying kits for survival since the body is practical. And only when the brain's defenses are down, as in dreams, do we drown in the pure stream. The way Madame Blavatsky dipped her body in the Ganges and, says Joel Hoffmann, said a prayer for plants and did not consider the history of the earth and its reigns of silence and long sleep. Four. Not every fish has a jaw, and many are the soft-bodied beast, beasts our ancestors, and many forgotten beyond the shale of recall. So their history can be read, some claim, in the cells of our body, the way language contains the layers of its development. And Dante said, angels have no need of memory, for they have continuous understanding. But we, to enter into thought, need a bridge. But a mind obsessively drawn toward memory, its own obstacle becomes, like magnets pushed apart by the field they create. Or I enter the picture as a shadow because dumbly I get in the way of the light. And because I am shadow, I cannot see. Or the way we cut open heads and x-ray our chests in the effort to find love. Clustered on the tip of my tongue are names of species, intermediate links that hurt with their skin, now missing for the lack of or other reasons, while we, improbable and fragile too, head toward extinction. Not hard shall certain the outcome of the match of recaller and recalled, and may alter both beyond recognition. Property is not passive. Five. Sudden the song of the blackbird and touch his spirit desire. You are there in the sound. What goes on in the soul that we must understand and can't? If the eye were a living creature, says Aristotle, its soul would be its ability to see. Skin stretches below the subconscious. The song gathers 
in their straying flight lines that carry the weight of absence. This is a thirst that resembles me. Okay, and then I would like to read a, well, a, the beginning of a recent series. It's again, uh, again prose poems. And uh, they all have gerund titles. So it starts with wanting. <laughs> wanting, always the possibility of this body. Thinking it here, in anxiety, in fear, but wanting to want the light never to stop. Caught between wanting and acting, between language and landscape, wanting to contain volumes, multitudes, curves to everywhere, describing circles of light, flashes of lightning. Wanting the body visible from head to toe and without secret, a nakedness without depths, believing it possible, the light as event, thinking to want to think as if in response. Doubting I love while knowing I have wanted to, thinking to console myself by describing veins in a block of marble as if seen, a reason for seeing. Fearing to exist without really living, absence of body within the body, wanting to be able to suffer, to look at the dark, the mass of night that surrounds or is myself. Thinking of the body, here without thinking, not knowing how to think, swimming without fatigue, as if without body, in a sea without water, without end. Thinking. I don't think I know how to go about it. I sit at the edge of the water as if it were the right place for learning to think, as if it were enough to sway with the current or indecision, stay, walk away, give in to the horizontal or a quick pu push upright. If I can't walk, might I yet, like Parkinson patients, be able to dance? My brain's incessant activity seems fruitless. It can't be thinking. I put it on paper to encounter it outside myself, an obstacle, a wall with a grain, with pores where I may discover a pattern. Then I'm recalled to my body by legs that are as if pricked by needles. How can I think when I can't even see night falling swiftly, shifting around me like water? Can one look at nothing and hope for help? Is it a matter of rocking with the dark monotonously, 
but I am speeding or slowing down the long lane where thinking gets lost in layers of dust, failing precision, failing to see, to embrace the gulls circling, the vast empty space, traffic noise borne in on the wind. Should I take off my clothes, nudity being power? But would I know my body scattered among memories, impossible to hold in the mind all at once? If I let the night invade my eyes all the way to the horizon, as if it had a body, might I then see the cause of my not seeing? It might be a beginning. Doubting. This is a poem for Aaron Koonin. Wanting to doubt as if it were liberating, a spectacular absence of obstacle over vast distances, enough to make me breathe. Accepting the cracks in the walls, the tightened silhouette. But do I have to refuse consolations and permanent address surrounding my body? Comparing the coordinates of knowing, doubting, believing, if two or more theories fit the facts, if the facts dissolve in multiple perspectives, will I choose the simplest, the most elegant, or the one that satisfies sacred desires? Trying to justify my choice without shrinking the field into mere surface erosion, I wonder, will doubt fill the whole body? Or will it open into a modulation in what does not exist? Not that I want to destroy, ironize, or even slam the door. I doubt that it would be useful to know myself. I doubt that I can escape doubt, that I can finish my work or even begin having only kidded myself that I was working. I doubt that the bits will fuse into a prism for desire or other forms of feeling. I don't doubt that I'll die, but I doubt, at least if I remain in Providence, there will be good weather for the funeral. and doing. I often don't know what to do, or if I want to. Dawn has long broken while I still drag my feet in the mud inside my head, hope for coffee, make a B-flat moan, to prepare the plunge into action, or not. Maybe I want to cast only a passing shadow, feel like my mother's thank God when she took off her corset. But I'm worried there's something I ought to be doing, afraid I'll die without having done anything, realized myself, you call it, but wouldn't that just mean limited myself? A cement mixer stuck in one motion, even if it helps build a house? 
So I delude myself into thinking I'm doing something when thinking, or when descending into the night with the cat and the dreams of the cat. You say, no doing without sweat of the brow, thorns and thistles, and bringing forth children. Should I look instead of worrying about fine distinctions that escape my eyes? Listen instead of fretting about the size of my ears? But can I cultivate my garden without becoming a cabbage head? The hand gets ready to write. Could we not call this manual labor? Or a stage in the great work of rendering the corporeal cat incorporeal while giving her body to the bodiless world, even if it's from despairing of my own body? You say, my writing is so slow, it's more like gravitational condensation or dust gathering on the cleaning supplies. It's true, I'm dawdling as if I had time to watch the formation of geological layers, so night already seeps through my brittle bones. I certainly don't know what to do to end my days gracefully, but the body dies all through our lives, thousands of cells every second, so everything should be very clear. Thank you. Born in Kansas in 1932, Keith Waldrop is a poet, translator, teacher, publisher, and collage artist who has lived since the 1960s in Providence, Rhode Island, where he is Professor Emeritus at Brown University's Literary Arts Program. Among his many books are the poetry collections A Windmill Near, Near Cavalry and the 2009 National Book Award recipient Transcendental Studies, as well as the novel, there's a little baby in the back, Light While There Is Light. A major figure in American translation, Waldrop has brought into English a number of books from French, German, and Chinese, including books by Charles Baudelaire, Claude Royette Journeau, Esther Tellerman, and in collaboration with Forrest Gander, Zhu Di. For more than half a century, he has run the press Burning Deck with Rosemary Waldrop, gifting us hundreds of books along the way. A Knight of the Order of Arts and Letters in France, Keith Waldrop's Selected Poems is recently out from Omnidon Books. Antiquary. <coughs> Some people try before cashing in to make their lives into shrines. Mine seems to be turning out, as predicted, a small provincial museum, <laughs> the kind that might have in some corner or other some one work you could be interested in if you knew it was there. <laughs> Memorials and keepsakes hang around, half cataloged. Some curiosa, here and there a whopper, 
Who else could maintain a scarlet nose drinking Dr. Pepper? <laughs> I have my precedence. Lots of men shuffle off, leaving a ball of tinfoil too large to get out of the attic, or half a century of the New York Times, or some other mess. I keep everything. Old gods and old ads fade together. Both show better on a neutral wall. Philosophies, old hat, catch dust on a rack. The trouble is, I'm a glutton. The floor is cluttered, the shelves go across the windows. I trip sometimes over ancient arguments or a lid I can't place, or claim two different heads to be St. Thomas's. Nothing, nothing will I surrender. There's little enough as it is. I may, of course, croak tomorrow, stumbling from the larder, but I will not set my house in order. Conversion. I'm already sweeping towards my most permanent state. Keith means wind, according to what to name the baby. <laughs> there is a paradise promised for those who despise whatever turns flesh going sour, and I have despised it, but I have been converted. Stock dreams can be flicked on, the assured voice forming first and then slowly its radiant body, but they fulfill no wish of mine. All my airier hopes have dwindled to a momentary point of light, disappearing. Reality is what does not change, i.e., reality is what does not exist, held desperately. All my past sins I attribute to a commerce with angels, someone else's. The earth brings forth of itself, and the rest is only worth a thought. Now faces crop out of the most random inorganic patterns. Usually nobody's in particular. I take them as a less specific, less beautiful allegory of spring. Sometimes at night my head swerves in a rising spiral of labyrinthine vertigo, descending only in the arc of sleep. But I have learned to like the dust I am fed by winds that shift across an actual world. I am already what I will be later, and the cycles shorten. I, lo I owe letters to so many, I doubt that I will ever catch up now.
Credo. It is a great doctrine that says we believe as much as we deserve. St. Thomas was worth apparently everything in the Summa, though he couldn't stomach the Immaculate Conception. Mrs. Katash of Arkhangelsk supposes she's a chamber pot and shrieks to be emptied. What does one have to do or be to accept streets of gold or the big lift at the rapture? Perhaps Gregory, for his compassion, was allowed to imagine sinners scorching out their stains in purgatory. I know a Christian says she just has to laugh thinking of all those atheists going to wake up in hell. There are those for whom God is dead, but who fear the devil or my black cat. I think the time is coming, and maybe now is, when the tree that overshadows this house will grow from my forehead, spreading like veins, ring after ring. Horror story. <clears throat> I had two grandfathers. One was a bald, gentle postmaster in Leeton, Missouri. He died and was buried. The other was some kind of preacher. I never saw him. The terrible thing about ghosts is that we know they are not there. Two grandmothers, one chased me with a broom because I accused her of riding it. The other stopped listening and went deaf. They both survived their husbands, but now they're both dead. My father is dead too, but this is no elegy. I was disappointed early by lack of precision. I found it hard to keep a grip on outlines. They always slip. The fine delineation swells around the edges where it smells. Woman, be strange. Take me with your eyelid. Nothing in dead landscapes suggests terror. I have married a wife whose surface I adore and other surfaces. Who knows what may leap out from the shadows? Loved houses are haunted and I have no explanation. Communication. No sooner is the tea in my teacup and Rosemary settled comfortably across the room into Proust's world, I begin this scratching around after some 
semblance of elegance. Does that mean I want to say something? I don't think so. Well, I confess a hankering after periodic sentences, even while writing some other kind. As for Earl Grey, whoever he was, we may assume he preferred a rough but aromatic brew. There's an elegant poem by Swift on a bride who unwisely on her wedding night has 12 cups of tea. <laughs> the kind of tea not specified. In experiments by Delgado and others, miniature electrodes are implanted in the tissues of the living brain and precise charges administered by radio control. Sham rage, sham sex, sham sleep are all available by command. Charlou's love life without such a device could have been straightened out. Maybe also Proust's and his asthma. Everyone must have noticed, so there's nothing much to be saying. How everything we drink turns to urine. Everything flows sooner or later and the rivers being as they are full of putrid matter and poison and whatever we've eliminated. I suggest thinking twice before stepping in. Otherwise, for the moment, no message. Money. Money is pure spirit. It's what you convert things into so as to carry their weight, their value without their weight. Things, everybody agrees, are interchangeable. Everything has its price. Money is the philosopher's stone. In the mind, too, the hard law holds everything must be paid for. You'd think at some point or other there'd be an unexpected surplus. One of those chain letters could come through with 4,096 $1 bills. You can't deny some people do seem to make fortunes from next to nothing. I treasure Blake's proverb about the fountain overflowing, and even more an old phrase about a fountain of gardens. But I'm jotting down here just so I won't forget how feelings that seem timeless pass quickly out of currency. Those who think God created heaven and earth must consider him number one spendthrift they must found their hopes on possible blunders in his accounting. It's hell to be poor.
proposition. Each grain of sand has its architecture, but a desert displays the structure of the, of the wind. Seventy one Elm Grove Avenue. Here and in St. Petersburg, one dreams of being run over by horses in the street. St. Petersburg, Russia, that is, at the turn of the century. Since the revolution, there are more and more horses, I mean, a thing of the past or of Westerns, which brings me to Italy, where a torrent of traffic rushes honking over the Roman Empire. But here, and through a desert, any time, the Nile flows like a dream. Great chain of being. While I watch, filth collects on surfaces. Noise and grease hang in the air like rain. Unutterable what flows through streets and offices towards the black hole of the cosmic drain. Lord, when you've looked at us and you're tired of what you're seeing, please do not neglect to pull the great chain of being. <laughs> great chain of being, great, great, great chain of being. Oh, if I had it to do over, or just had it to do, I'd probably make a mess of it, just like God. Light stains the clear air, a dirty shade of blue, while the daintiest foot is on its way to the meanest clod. But everything is in order for my individual peeing to his final grinding tug on the great chain of being, great chain of being, great, great, great chain of being. Do not disturb. If, when you've gotten past the door that's always locked, down the corridor they say is there, and if the passage isn't blocked, and if you find the stockroom where the things we want are stocked, wake me then. Or if you reach a cloudy gate, and if you make it through, and if you find the treasuries of snow and rain and dew, and bring back all the colors to replace our few, 
wake me then. Or if you get across the ocean that's larger than our own and reach the fallen angels howling around their fallen throne and can tell me about their darkness darker than I've known, wake me then. Or if you come to a garden where a tree is blazing like ice, a place in which even the most unique thing happens twice. And if you're absolutely certain that it's free and paradise, wake me then. Or if in your adventures you should stumble on the place from which all power flows like water pouring from a vase, and then if after seeing that, nothing else can ever be the case. Wake me then. Or if your plans wreck and go down, but if you keep exploring taste by taste the extreme flavors of the deep, and if you come to rest in some more satisfying spot to sleep, Wake me then. Thank you. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.